of war is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to civilian deaths, brainwashing, bombing, torture, immolation, gas poisoning and other atrocities of war, child soldiers, drug addiction, forced marriage, sexual assault and rape. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. This episode was recorded during Melbourne's fifth lockdown, so we apologise for any audio issues that there may arise. And we'd like to say thank you to the Prime Minister Scott Morrison for royally fucking up the vaccine rollout. Thanks, Scott Morrison. And I had forgotten how to get under my tent, but I think we're here and I'm happy and my back is fine. I'm not old. I turned 27 the other day. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, happy birthday. Thank you. That's that's me. That's you. I don't know what I am at the moment. I'm very tired. (laughs) And I'm Nicola. I'm also very tired. I'm a teacher in training and a historian who looks at the history of masculinity and crime. What kind of history do you do, Hannah? I like that you're prompting me to actually give a proper description. Yes. I study women who protested nuclear weapons Ooh. in the 1960s in Australia. PhD, six months away from submission. This is fine. It's fine. It's fine. And what is this, Hannah? And this is Women of War, our <laughs> podcast where we talk about wars and conflicts and the women who are involved or affected by them. This week, we'll be looking at the life and experiences of Marjan Satrapi the author of various comic books, including the worldwide sensation Persepolis. This episode will focus on Marjan's childhood, up to her exunt from Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. Iran today is known for being an oil-rich country and officially known as the Islamic Republic of Iran, as well as being known for, how you say, a little repressive, authoritative and conservative. Today's episode focuses on how Iran, previously a monarchy, became the Islamic Republic, from the child's eye view of one who was there. So who was Majan? Majan was born in Rasht, Iran in November 1969 and grew up in Tehran, the capital city. As detailed in the early pages of Persepolis, Majan grew up in a quite radical household. Before the Iranian Revolution in 1979, she attended a mixed-gender French non-religious school. Her parents, Taji and Ebi, were both communist-aligned educated people from wealthy families and progressive in their community. They, especially her mother Taji, held education as key to liberating women. And Taji told Marjan, quote, Oh, you should never count on your face, count on your intelligence. I don't care if you get married or not. I want you to study and to be economically independent, end quote. Which, at the time, Marjan thought her mother was saying, you're going to be so ugly, you're never going to get a husband, so at least be smart to make up for it. Later on, when they talked about it, her mum was like, are you, are you kidding? That is definitely not what I meant. <laughs> So, both Taji and Ebi hadn't become communist overnight. There's two things you need to know. One, they were born into the Cold War when the USSR and all of its satellite states were nice and tucked up behind the Iron Curtain. For the average person in a time with highly regulated media, um, and it's being double regulated here, first on its way out of the USSR and then on its way into the Shah's Iran, everything seemed to be going hunky-dory, super sexy in the second world. And let's be real, no matter where you go in the world, once you bump into uni students, you bump into socialists. I love using communist, socialist and Marxist interchangeably. Doesn't make things cu- confusing at all. As long as you don't slip Lenin in there. Oh, I love being a latte sipping in a city lefty. Me too. Sound effects. Clink mugs together. This was written before lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Would you so, like me to actually define the difference? Uh, yes, please. Okay. So, socialism is essentially the big daddy of them all. And so it starts out in the Industrial Revolution and all the workers are really poor and miserable and depressed, which mood. And so they started advocating for rights and essentially the idea of socialism is everyone can kind of have a bit of a better life. We all work towards that. Then communism comes next and that's under socialism. It's essentially a type of socialism. Uh, defined by Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto. Um, And then as you go down, then you get Marxism, which is pretty similar to communism, essentially, after Marx. Leninism, which is Lenin's version of communism, 
You have Marxist Leninism, which is some combination thereof. You have Stalinism, which is Stalin's version. You have Trotskyism. You have Trotskyism. You have Marxist feminism at times, which is feminist versions of Marxism. You have Maoism. Like it's it's just everything keeps going. But yeah. They're all in a scale. They're all one. They all come from socialism. Socialism is the OG. And then yeah. they just go down. So the definition I usually give my students is like Marxism is that socialism will become a natural progression through a series of naturally occurring revolutions between classes. Whereas Leninism is this idea of pushing and making those revolutions happen. And that's the difference there between communism and socialism. Is socialism, let's do it democratically and just change the system. Communism, let's have a revolution. Okay, yeah. So speaking, however, of all this socialism and speaking of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, they're going to come up in a little while. Just put a little red flag in that. In addition to that reasoning behind their Marxist values, Iran is next door to various states that were at the time practicing their own form of Arab socialism, including Egypt, Syria and Iraq. The key difference between international socialism and Arab socialism is that Arab socialism has strong links to Arab nationalism. You don't really need to worry about that right now. However, Iran only has a population today of about 2% Arabs and is not part of the Arab world, though there are some cultural similarities and crossovers. Now, like their European counterparts, these Arab socialist regimes were also rocky by the 1970s, the time of Marjan's childhood, but would have seemed to some outsiders to be the best way of living. There was a clear political pedigree in Marjan's family on both her maternal and paternal sides. Taji's father, Taji being Marjan's mum, also worked in politics. Marjan herself was privately very religious, and by the age of six, she was sure she was the last prophet of Islam. You can see in her prophet ideology, communist ideals and discomforts with the inequalities of Iran. Her holy book declared that they should celebrate Zoroastrianism. I know I can say this word. I believe in you. Her holy book declared that they should celebrate traditional Zarathustrian holidays and use the words of Zarathustra himself, the first prophet of Iran before the Arab invasion. His three rules, Marjan says, were behave well, speak well, act well. I like these rules. Maybe I'm accidentally a Zarathustrian. I can do the first and the last, but not the speaking one. So I do know that and I am working on it. I've been working on it my whole <laughs> life. Marjan also declared that all maids should eat at the table with the family, everyone should have a car, and that no old person should suffer. I think we all just became Satrapians. Except for the car thing, everyone should have access to world-class carbon-neutral public transport. The 21st century version of Satrapians. As the revolution of 1979 drew nearer and nearer, Marjan and her friends were clearly drawn into the politics and mimicked their parents as they played on the playground, marching and chanting to bring down the shark. Her parents encouraged her interest in politics and brought her political education books, where she learned of Marx, Palestine and the cruelties of the United States. However, Marjan's parents did shield her from the atrocities the Shah's regime, Shah's regime were perpetrating on the people of Iran, perhaps a little too well. Marjan, age nine, told her parents that she loved the Shah and he was chosen by God. After all, it was on the first page of her school book and school books never lie. And God told her that. Marjan often spoke to God as a young child. Not in like a crazy way, just chatting. It was around this time that Marjan's dad, Ebi, told her of the true origins of the Shah and his father. So, how did the Shah come to power? So, as Marjan thought... Uh, you know, I thought maybe also he was assumed chosen by God, but no, no, no. It was colonialism all along. But I bet you didn't think we'd be seeing that. I'm again. sorry. I'm sorry, Hannah. I've got to interrupt you. We're just getting some breaking news from the 25th of August, 1941. Tonight, 25th of August, 1941. Anglo-Soviet troops have entered Iran in a move to prevent a Nazi coup. British and Russian troops simultaneously entered Iran this morning after the Iranian government had rejected demands for the expulsion of large numbers of German agents. One landing involving British and Indian troops was resisted at the head of the Persian Gulf. But there is no doubt it will be carried out successfully. There are no reports of resistance being met with at any other point, nor any news of the Russian advance into the north of Iran. Radio Moscow first announced the Allies' move, and soon afterwards an official announcement that Britain and the Soviets had taken joint military action in Iran was made. The official statement issued said, 
The action taken is designed solely to deny the Axis any further opportunity to threaten the security of Russia and the countries of the Middle East and India, and to prevent oil and other resources in Iran from falling into German hands, which Iran herself would be powerless to prevent. And we're back! Yes, in August 1941, in the thick of World War II, in the wake of the devastation of Operation Barbarossa, aka Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union and their unlikely British allies invaded Iran to throw out Nazi agents. This was definitely a purely altruistic move. Iran, by this point, had been ruled by the Pahlavi dynasty since 1925. Also, just super quickly, it was not actually purely altruistic. The Allies needed oil because of that war that was going on. And they also wanted oil because the war would be over soon and you can't have a post-war economic reconstruction without Americans buying big motor cars to drive through their wide streets and Italian buying, Italians buying Vespers to drive through their rubble-strewn villages. Oil 19- makes the world go round. Yeah. In 1921, there had been a minor coup in Iran, which was in part directed by the British, who were there for the oil, and to stop the Bolsheviks and to protect their interests in India. But that sexy, sexy oil. This did not topple the Qajar dynasty, the previous Shahs, but it did lead to the installation of Reza Khan, who would later become Reza Shah Pahlavi, as Iran's war minister. The previous dynasty of Shahs, the Qajars, had ruled Persia slash Iran since the 1700s. This new dynasty of Shahs would be Reza Shah and his son, Muhammad Reza, who would eventually be overthrown in the 1979 Iranian Revolution. And yes, this might be feeling a little confusing. Iran is one of the most ethnically, linguistically, culturally complex regions in the world with an incredibly crazy history that stretches back at least 6,000 years. We're also talking about the tail end of World War II and all of the USSR's interference in its eastern border. So the point is, following the 1921 British-led coup in Iran, Reza Khan became war minister and used his position and the various skirmishes Iran was then involved in to rise in power and status. In 1923, he was appointed prime minister of Iran. The current Shah of Iran, Ahmad Shah Qajar, maybe, basically saw the writing on the wall and went, hey, I'm going on holiday to Europe for a while. He never came back. In 1925, the Iranian government declared Reza Khan, Reza Shah Pahlavi. May he last a thousand years. Except it was not going to last a thousand years. Sorry, Nicola, to interrupt you now. We've got some more news coming in from September 1941, less than a month after the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran. Tonight, a new Shah for Iran. The Shah of Iran, Riza Khan Pahlavi, has abdicated. He is succeeded by his eldest son, Shapur Muhammad Reza. The original Shah has since left Iran. First reports said he fled by car. The official announcement stated that the Shah had abdicated because of ill health. British and Russian troops are advancing towards Tehran and are expected soon to occupy the city. It was a short rule for Reza Khan Pahlavi, who would go down in history as the second last Shah of Iran. His rule was and remains controversial. He had a massive focus on nationalising and modernising Iran, developing the military, trade and economy. He also aimed to minimise foreign input, interference in Iran, namely, I mean, he also aimed to minimise foreign input, interference in Iran, namely, especially the British. One of the ways he did this was by limiting British access to Iranian oil, which pissed off the British. Like the Australian government and opposition love coal now, the British then loved oil. He also limited Soviet access to Iranian oil, which pissed off the Soviets. Like Americans now, the Soviets loved oil. Soviets would still love oil if they still existed. And in the middle of a total war with that Hitler guy, the British and the Soviets needed oil. But the Anglo-Soviet invasion wasn't a last-ditch attempt to save the Allied cause from the Axis. No, it was an invasion of a neutral country. It wasn't helped by the fact that in order to diversify the Iranian economy and make hay while the sun shone, the Shah had also encouraged German, or at this stage Nazi, investment in Iranian industry. Yes, in 1939, Nazi Germany was Iran's biggest trading partner. In the late you know you're fucked up if that's your biggest trading partner, really. Yeah, I was going to be like, in their defence! It's like, no, there's no... No. Uh, no. <laughs> Like, well, didn't you know the British brought out Australia's entire wool stock for World Wars One and Two? But like, that's a bit different. In the later years of his reign, Reza Khan Pahlavi and his government also became increasingly despotic and corrupt, stomping out the free press and intelligent classes. I'm never going to say that word. I don't know why I put it in the intelligentsia. 
intelligentsia. Thank you. I didn't literally how it's spelled. Well, usually it's not. That's the issue. Because <laughs> a complete counter to the hardline progressive policies Reza Khan Pahlavi had introduced at the start of his reign, including a national healthcare system, excavating the ancient city of Persepolis, and allowing Jewish people who live in Ilan to leave their... Ilan? Who lived in Iran? Ilan is not a country. To leave their ghettos. Unfortunately, he went too far with these progressive values, banning traditional Iranian dress and instructing the population to wear Western clothing. This distressed a lot of men, because that included a hat with a broom, which means you can't touch your forehead to the ground while praying. He also tried to phase out the hijab and the shador, which is like a step up from the hijab, but a step down from the burqa. He really did that thing a lot of dictators of that era did. He would, with one hand, he's dangling progressive ideas and modernization, ideas the West find palatable, in front of people. And with the other hand, he's beating the absolute shit out of anyone who doesn't agree with him. However, following the erosion of Iran in 1941, the Anglo-Soviet alliance bombarded the cities and the modern army that the Shah had spent years and millions of, this is very helpful, Nicola, insert Iranian 1940s currency here. I'm pretty sure it was like, it began with R. Millions of monies building up quickly collapsed. Iranian officers sympathized with the British cause and often actually assisted the invaders by putting down resistance. The Russians, nicely, did do a couple of leaflet drops of Tehran, which warned of heavy bombing raids. In response, the royal family, except for Raza Khan and his son Mohammad Reza, fled Iran. The Shah blamed some of his generals, perhaps rightly so, considering they'd helped the British put down resistance, and his, new pri- and his prime minister for their failure to prevent the Anglo-Soviet invasion. He got a new prime minister, Muhammad Ali Farogi, and ordered the military to enter into negotiations with the Anglo-Soviet invaders. Farogi didn't like the Shah, though, and so when in discussion with the Brits and the Russians, he implied that the people of Iran all hated the Shah, which they might very well have, and that they'd better be better off chucking him out. The Anglo-Soviet negotiators were like, mm, yeah, it's very good, well noted, 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 noted. Farogi managed to hash out a deal with them. If the Allies were to withdraw, Iran had to, one, expel the German minister and his staff. Two, close the German, Italian, Hungarian and Romanian legations, which a legation is like a baby embassy. So if we mention it again, we'll probably just call it an embassy. Embassy full of babies. And three, hand over all German nationals to the Allies, a.k.a. the British and the Soviets. Reza Khan stalled on this, especially the last point. Part of it was his own shittiness. Another part was the knowledge that if those Germans were handed to the Soviets, they might very well die in prison. He organised to secretly evacuate the Germans to Turkey. As the last Germans crossed the border, the Red Army moved to occupy Tehran on September 16th, and the wealthy Iranians fled the city. On September 17th, Reza Khan Balavi abdicated in a letter written by his Prime Minister, Rogi. At first, the British wanted to bring back the Khazar dynasty, but the dude they had lined up didn't speak Persian. Persian is also called Farsi, we might swap between those two. And this is actually pretty good for the British, not installing a leader who doesn't speak the language. They've learned. Oh, look, that's a good start, Britain. That's a like, good start. They've learned. Maybe don't play with other countries like their puppets, but you know. So the British instead installed Reza Khan Pahlavi's son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, as the new Shah. Because he's the last Shah, he's often just called the Shah. But because Shah sounds awful in an Australian accent, we might just call Shah, mate. Shah. Um... So the, his- the history of modern Iran is really interesting, but um, there's a couple of housekeeping issues we need to do. Hannah, can you, you did such a good job with Marxism and Leninism before. Can you, Thank define, you. Can you define the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam? No. Good. Valid. Okay. <laughs> well, one, one other thing I want to point out is some Muslims today, not many, I believe, but some do identify as like just Muslim. Like they don't identify as Sunni or Shia now, which is interesting. Um, but basically, for Sunni and Shia, the issue is Muhammad, the prophet, peace be upon him, and who should have been Muhammad's successor. Sunni Muslims hold that Muhammad had no appointed successor and the next leader of the Muslim community should have should choose a leader from among themselves. The leader who eventually was elected was named Abu Bakr. Bakr? I'm really sorry, guys. He was also Muhammad's father-in-law. So that Shiite or Shia Muslims believe that Muhammad appointed a successor before his death. Ali ibn Abi Talib. Shia Muslims so hold the only rightful Muslim leaders were Ali and his descendants who were called the 12 Imams. And Iran today is predominantly Shia. Back to Majan. After finding out the truth about Reza Shah, Majan still wasn't convinced. 
perhaps God had still helped the Pahlavis come to power. And so her dad, Ebi, dropped the truth bomb. Majan's maternal grandfather was one of the sons of the last Qajar emperor. Now, Majan does say today that this is super common in Iran. A lot of people can trace their lineage back up to nobility. But at the time, she was like, whoa, this is wild. They tended to have a lot of kids. So, like, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like, like um, what's his name? Genghis Khan. Like, so many people can trace his, their lineage back to Genghis Khan. I was thinking about, like, Princess Diana, um, because she was actually related to, like, King Charles II. So yeah. it's kind of funny that um, if William ever takes the throne, um, he'll be a descendant of the Stuart Kings as well as the House of Saxe-Coburg and Goethe. Anyway. That is pretty interesting. I like that. I hope we're a republic by then. Yep. The new Shah, Reza Shah Pahlavi, also chose Margie's grandfather on her mother's side as his prime minister for a time. This is like the Labour Party a few years ago. They went through a lot of prime ministers. Um, <laughs> Marjan's grandfather was horrified by the class stratification in Iran and the greed of capitalists. So Marjan actually portrays him as a committed Leninist in his brief appearance in her book. Marjan's mother also shared her childhood experiences when her father would be arrested and taken from their home and tortured in prison, which broke his health. It's upon learning this family condition that Marjan portrays herself as connecting with the true history of Iran's rulers and the political experience of her family. That night, she stayed in the bath for hours until the water was cold, recreating a torture her mother told her that her father, the prince and the prime minister, had undergone. She also asked her maternal grandmother, whom she was quite close to, about her husband. And things had been tough. That often had no money and so no food, and she had taken in clothes for mending and pretended to cook in the evenings, even when they had nothing to eat. Marjan's grandmother seems to have been an amazing lady because she then presented Marjan with a selection of books to help the young Margie understand why the people of Iran had been revolting. Against the Shah, they're not just really gross, they're revolting things. <laughs> Reza Shah Pahlavi was bad. His son, Muhammad Reza Shah, was worse. Obviously, he came to power following his father's forced abdication, Soviet and British gunpoint. Oh shit, he said after coming to power. We are industrially backwards. Fuck cultural and civic rights. We better get some mines and trains and factories up in this shit. Someone tried that to sounds like a communist. Yeah. Someone tried to shoot him in the face in 1949, but he survived. Um, in 1993, there was, look, this alone could take two hours, but there was a coup. His prime minister took over and nationalised the oil industry. The British and the US were involved, and then the Shah came back to power. And we're not going to go any further into it. No, we do not have time. Ain't nobody got time for that. Muhammad Reza was widely viewed and spoken of by interfering Western powers as a figurehead monarchy on a wobbly throne, and felt his new prime minister, a guy called General Fazullah Zahidi, was the real power. This made Muhammad Reza quite nervy, because, you know, his own father had kicked out the last royal family. As prime minister? As prime minister, yeah. The Shah was also held in contempt by many Iranian elites and the more educated classes. He decided to use the perception of him as an incompetent to his advantage and ended up playing the British and the Yanks off each other. He also gathered lefty intellectuals to his side and asked them how to best modernise Iran, because they're all, always the best people to ask about organisation. He cultivated an image of himself as a progressive Shah who'd modernise Iran, like his daddy, but also in his own right. It wasn't all in good faith, though. Muhammad Reza Shah also developed a cult of personality around himself, always a sign of a great leader, um, aligning himself with Cyrus the Great, the founder of the First Persian Empire. He persecuted certain ethnic groups and worked with conservative Islamic mullahs to solidify his power. He used religion as a tool of manipulation, claiming that he had been chosen by God. In 1962, he changed laws which meant that Iranian Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, and the previously persecuted Baha'i to take their oaths of office the municipal councils on whatever holy book they would like, as opposed to the Quran. So they could and, like put their hand on whatever book they wanted. Yeah. When they you see this in the US today, people try and take their oaths on things about the Bible. People are like, oh, how dare they? And it's like, uh, there's no, there's nothing written down that says it has to be the Bible. You're just being <laughs> a cultural imperialist. In this case, I, I swear on the Bible, that. I would be more likely to lie in court. I know. I was trying to figure out what I would swear on, actually, if I was like taken to court. And I did ask a friend who's a lawyer this. Uh, and she was like, uh, you can't, you can swear whatever you want, but like, it doesn't really matter. And so I think I would swear on a Terry Pratchett book. I was going to guess that, like yeah. legitimately. I was like, she's going to say Terry Pratchett. Well, you know, good, good books, man. I, like I, don't, I don't know what I would swear on. 
don't know. It's like the books that teach you the importance of like free free will and being kind to other people, I guess. Garlic bread. I like garlic bread. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So the Shah was like, you can take your oath of office on whatever holy book you want. And then some guy named Ayatollah Khomeini wrote to the Shah and was like, you can't do that. Also, I'm the leader of a very influential group of conservative Muslims and Iranians, and I will fuck you up if you do this. So the Shah was like, lol, I'm going to do what I want. And Khomeini was like, fuck you. And then Khomeini organized um, demonstrations with the help of the conservative clergy. The Shah was like, okay, and he changed the law back. But not for long. Um, Khomeini was soon kicked out of the country. And bye, he is not coming back. Little winky wink at the camera there. In 1963, Shah Muhammad Reza launched the White Revolution. Called so because it was a bloodless revolution, was a two-pronged way of ensuring the Shah's power. One, it was a massive project of land reform and industrialization, privatizing some industries, creating massive dam and irrigation projects, and also reaching out to the Soviet Union and other Eastern European nations, who, at this point, were firmly doing not great. So the Stalinist economic system was, shockingly, failing to make life better for those living under Soviet rule. This would eventually lead to various revolts as people were like, can we have a better economic system? Um, And it would eventually then lead to things like the Prague Spring of 1968, where the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia tried to implement reforms that were then brutally crushed by Soviet forces. Can we have a tabby, please? No! But that is a story for another time. Again, that would be two hours. In Iran, the White Revolution was also an attempt to bring the Iranian peasants to the side of the Shah as the growing middle class, of which Majan and her family were a part, and, you know, back over some more of the religious conservative power structures. The White Revolution was passed via a national referendum where 5.6 million people voted in favour and 4,115 voted against, which seems definitely very legitimate. That is, that is definitely the right odds. However, the White Revolution did end up in part shooting the shower in the foot, as the peasants simply became independent farmers or landless labourers who weren't particularly loyal to the Shah either way. Other peasants were drawn en masse into the cities and ended up stuck there in poverty and misery. Marjan touches on this a little bit in Persepolis, but she didn't live through it. She was born in 1969, but like the number 69, context is sexy. And now we're back to where we started. Marjan, having discovered that the Shah was not chosen by God, or if he was, God is a really bad pickup. Yes. <laughs> And her new access to political texts radicalised Marjan, and her radicalisation ran parallel to the development of the revolutionary situation in Iran. On August 19, 1978, the cinema Rex in southwestern Iran was set on fire by four men who doused it with plane fuel. At least 420 people who were there to watch a film called The Diyar, um, only in Persian, perished, while people on the street were barred from entering to help them. They were stopped by the, by the police and the military. The Shah's regime blamed Islamic Marxists, while anti-Shah agitators blamed the Shah's secret police. And this to me seems more likely, as the film itself was highly political and concerned with the plight of migrant workers following the White Revolution. Some others argue it was conservative religious extremists, because the film showed, among other things, heroin use, but we just don't know. This film was important enough, though, that Marjan's parents had also watched it with Marjan at a different point. She was not at the fire, but imagines the scene in her book. Marjan gives this event a two-page spread in Persepolis, showing the Shah's police with eyes close to the fire, then looming large over victims and those who tried to rescue them. The final panel takes up most of the page and shows cinema-goers fleeing through the blocked doors in white silhouettes on a black background, as behind them and above them their fellow victims are depicted as flame-white ghosts. To many, the cinema Rex fire was the tipping point for the 1979 revolution. Many Iranians who had felt neutral or too scared to go out publicly against the Shah suddenly realised that they weren't safe even if they just went about their normal lives. Protests exploded around Iran. Haji and Ebi went out to protest daily, and Ebi photographed the protests and the cruelty of the Shah's police and military. Majan begged to be taken with them, but her parents refused her. Finally, on September 8, 1979, Maji and the family's maid, Mary, struck out, snuck out to join a protest. They marched and chanted all day, and then returned home to Majan's frantic parents, who had thought both girls were dead. September 8th was the date of Black Friday, the day after the Shah's regime had declared martial law. Thousands of protesters had gathered in a square in Tehran to demonstrate when the army surrounded them and shot indiscriminately into the crowd. 
Panels from this period from Persepolis portray bodies lying upon bodies, and another shows a long line of bald, pale corpses with staring eyes pushing the Shah away. As with the arson attack on Cinema Rex, this was a key point in the course of the revolution. There was no going back from this brutal assault by the Shah on his own people. The Shah and his government did try to claim it was Zionist troops, and much later on former politicians who had been in power at the time claimed there were Palestinian guerrillas there, and that was why they were firing into the crowd. But that was no use. With around 88 people dead that day in Tehran alone, most of them in the Jale Square massacre, the tide turned against the Shah. The protests continued, with troops becoming less and less likely to enact violence on protesters. In September, workers at Iran's main oil refinery downed tools and went on strike. Within two days, refineries at five other cities were also on strike, and by October, there was a nationwide general strike. The important group here is the oil workers. This is where most of Iran's wealth had come from, and it wasn't just crippling the country for lack of petrol, it was crippling the entire world. This is the cause of the 1979 oil crisis, which had global impacts, including the widespread adoption of decent public transport infrastructure and investment in electric-powered cars, thus averting the climate crisis. God, I, I wish that dream, was Harold! I wish that was true. Oh, man. I was going to put in a Keating reference there that I was like, wait, that's the wrong oil crisis. Never mind. The fact that we've had multiple oil crises really should be like, maybe let's stop using oil for things. Yes. Yes, we yeah. should have. Anyway. anyway. Interestingly, the Shah was a cool dad when it came to the strikers, and he increased wages, perhaps to lure them back to work and allowed the strikers who already lived in public housing to stay there. This further confused soldiers and police who, as to who the enemy was, and even the Shah's own ministers begged him to go harder on the strikers. Around this time, Ayatollah Khomeini, remember him, had been hanging around in Iraq in exile, spreading his conservative word through Iran via taped recordings of sermons and transcripts. The Shah rang Iraq and was like, would you mind kicking him a little further away? Saddam Hussein, then leader of Iraq, said, sure, and sent Khomeini to France, which was a mistake. Not only because France can be quite, no, make that, extremely Islamophobic, but also because France has much better phone lines and access to the media than Iraq or Iran, which meant Khomeini found it easier to spread his rhetoric. Though Khomeini would become the head of the new Iran, he's not really present in Marjan's text. It seems to me she seems, sees the revolution more as a people's uprising that Khomeini was in Port Barnett by than centering him. This fits in with her Marxist ideologies, but also because it's a child's eye view of the revolution. You're not thinking about who's going to lead. You're thinking about what you're getting rid of. Yeah. And I feel like a child's eye view of the revolution, you see the, or not propaganda, but kind of propagandist, like presentation of revolutions as these spontaneous human-led mass movements where often they're led by key people. So, But I feel like you don't see the key people when you're a child. You just see everyone's doing this revolting and you know this is a mass people power movement. i think it's also like they might not be even led by people but just steered like when you think about yes. lenin especially as an example versus kerensky's inability to maintain power and authority anyway iran iran also please- i typed shah as czar is actually not funny <laughs> I would like praise, please, as well, because I have not started singing We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, gosh. Maybe later. <laughs> so please praise me for that. All right. On November 5th, the University of Tehran was taken over by student protesters and the various opposition groups to the Shah had gained access to weapons. After soldiers again attacked the university, there was a riot where many police and government buildings were attacked and vandalised, as well as shops, movie theatres and the British and American embassies. Many of these rioters, it was later found, were radicalized young men from southern Tehran who had been set up to the main part of who had been sent up to the main part of the city. Due to mixed messages from the government, the military often avoided intervening and let the rioters and protesters have the run of the city. The Shah then instructed the army not to use their weapons against the people, as to preserve what was left of his popularity. Yeah, all all one ball of us. I don't know, there's like <laughs> one like chestnut size thing of popularity there's, like there's one guy that's still like yeah i like the shah and he's like make sure that guy still likes me he's got like a shah plate collection yeah <laughs> in december 1978 around 7.5 million people marched against the shah across iran 
which is quite possibly the largest proportion of any population of a country in a revolution ever. Yeah. Which is pretty cool, I think. That is very cool. So I think this does point to Iran's revolution as a genuine popular movement that was hijacked and in part steered by Khomeini, but it's definitely a yep. popular movement. I look like Sinead O'Connor in the camera because I'm just like a floating head on a black back. I don't actually know what Sinead O'Connor looks like. Isn't she bald? Well, she I've been bald, so like, you know. But you're not She's bald Muslim now. now, actually. Good for her. Anyway, as the Shah's power waned, Khomeini's drew stronger and some secular Iranians began to worry about his own policies. They told themselves that Khomeini would remain a figurehead but hand the power across to a more secular and balanced government. <laughs> Famous last words. The military began to defect in large numbers from the Shah, both as Khomeini requested them to do it, and as protesters would often present soldiers with flowers and beseech them to desert. The Shah selected a new prime minister, by this point he'd been through about 800, and settled mm-hmm. on a man from the opposition, Shapur Bakhtiar. This was another attempt by the Shah to appear like he was making concessions to the rebels in the hopes of preserving his power. Khomeini then denounced Bakhtiar. The Shah had attempted to delay his leaving further, but putting Bakhtiar up as PM didn't work. And on January 16, 1979, Mohammad Reza, the last Shah of Iran, fucked off to Egypt, where he would eventually die in 1980, with a bag of Iranian soil under his bed. And so, on January 17, the people of Iran awoke in a changed nation, one where the government, military and bureaucracy were in a shambles. But who cared? Finally, the despot had gone. And as Majan put it, the country had the biggest party in its history. So if you can't hear anything in the background, um, the heat has just come on because it's 13 degrees in my house. So there's that. Winter. So as with all revolutions, there was a lot of political manoeuvring behind the scenes between various parties from the radical left to the extremely conservative radical right. Sounds like you're introducing a boxing match. Yeah. Ding, ding. Yeah. Didn't Marx box? Anyway. By 1982, however, Ayatollah Khomeini and his mates had mostly consolidated their power and were in control of Iran. This period of consolidation is not an area of concern for Marjan in her biography. She's still a young girl, remember, and it's more focused on her personal experience of the revolution. So this experience included things like the neighbours claiming to be important figures in the revolution. So like there was one lady, the mum points out, the woman is now walking around in a shadow, which is like the full body um, veil, but your face is uncovered. Um, and her husband's like, I won't even say alcohol without cleaning my mouth out. But she points out, like, the previous year before the revolution, um, the woman had been walking around in a miniskirt. Mm. Um, so um, Marjan and her friends also like to play games. They would hunt down local kids with nails because their dads had been in the secret police for the Shah and inventing new ways of torture, you know, normal stuff like that. Um, this recreation of their parents' world on a smaller scale is really common in child's play. It's their way of understanding the world. It wasn't official in Iran in the same way like the German, the Hitler youth were in Germany, but think of it more like kids playing house in kinder and lower primary school. You can tell a lot about what's going on in those kids' worlds and experiences by how they inhabit and play and portray those roles. And like who they assign to certain roles and things too, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And something much more important had happened. One of the immediate consequences of the revolution was the mass release of various political prisoners including some family friends and Majan's father's brother, Uncle Anoush. Majan had long been jealous of a friend of hers because the girl's dad had been in jail as a political prisoner. And embarrassingly, Majan didn't have any relatives that she knew of that were in prison. This all changed with Anoush. Anoush was a political prisoner for what has since become held as a kind of historical blip, assisting in the establishment of the Azerbaijan People's Government. Everybody get out your maps! Azerbaijan is today a majority Muslim country with close ties to Turkey and, like Turkey, a history of human rights abuses. Are we really just going to leave it at that? Today's focus is Iranian and, in part, Iraqi human rights abuses. We will cover the sins of Erdogan and Azerbaijan another time. Okay, sounds good. Until 1991, Azerbaijan was under the control of the Soviet Union as a satellite state known as the Azerbaijan SSR. The Soviets had taken control of the region in the very early 1920s, even as the Bolsheviks were still working to control all of Russia. Their reasoning was, as it always seems to be, that's sexy, sexy oil. The state that the Bolsheviks took over, the Azerbaijan Democratic Republic, the ADR, was the first majority Muslim nation in the world to be a parliamentary democracy and grant suffrage to women in 1918. 
In comparison, it took Britain until 1928 to grant equal suffrage for all citizens over 21. But that is more of a historical novelty in this episode. The Azerbaijan Democratic Republic fell to the new Soviet power and remained there for the majority of the 20th century. Azerbaijan is to the northwest of Iran and also borders the Caspian Sea, which Iran also shares a coastline with. In the top northwestern corner of Iran, which borders Azerbaijan, is a region known as Iranian Azerbaijan, where a large portion of the population is made up of Iranian Azerbaijanis who are mostly Shia Muslim. As you can imagine, this region is a place of incredible cross-cultural pollination, philosophy and art. It's also, you know, a little politically complicated. However, in late 1945, Marjan's great-uncle Feriodun Ebrahimi took off and declared this region the Azerbaijan People's Government, independent from the Shah. I just want to point out here, I looked this up, Ebrahimi is a derivative of Abraham, and it means father of nations. So I was like, that is a very good name for this man. Yep. So this is um, Marjan's great-uncle Feridun Ebrahimi. Um, so he is Anush and her father's uncle. Inspired by his uncle, 18-year-old Anush took off and became Feridun's secretary. His own father disowned him, warning Anush that both he and Feridun would end up executed. In the book Persepolis, Marjan draws her great-uncle Feridun as a peaceful statesman, declaring, quote, Gentlemen, justice is the basis of democracy. All men should be equal in the eyes of the law, end quote. In Marjan's eyes, her uncle, and her great-uncle, could do no wrong. Not only had they attempted to establish a free and fair state and been imprisoned for his beliefs, Anush was also a communist. But in reality, the legacy of the Azerbaijani people's government is a little more complicated. Was it a free and fair state throwing off the yoke of oppression? Maybe. But many also argue it was a puppet state of the USSR set up after the 1941 overthrow of Mohammad Reza Shah's father, the first and penultimate Pahlavi Shah. The Azerbaijani Democratic Party, ADP, formed in September 1945, headed by Jafar Pushavari, where Feridun had been the procurator general. It was like the guy in charge of public procurators under an inquisitorial civil law system. Public procurators are state officers who both investigate and prosecute crimes. So basically, Feriadun was head of the government crime investigation and prosecution squad. So back to the local political scene. I also want to say thanks but no thanks to Vanessa and my friend Amira, um, who both of whom I asked about procurating and inquisitorial law systems, and they were like, I don't fucking know. I study the common law system. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate You're good people. You're good people. Where were we? Yeah. After what basically amounts to a mostly bloodless coup with the assistance of the USSR, the ADP took over Iranian Azerbaijan and set up shop. Their power, however, was in part definitely thanks to the presence of the Soviet army who were preventing the Iranian army from entering the region. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, New documents have revealed that the Soviets were under orders from someone very high up in the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union, or Sovmin, thank you, Hannah, <laughs> to assist the ADP in forming government. It's probably a long-shot hope of getting some Iranian oil. In mid-1946, after a year of independence, the Azerbaijan People's Government negotiated with the Iranians in Tehran to become once again part of Iran, but they would become a provincial council, which gave them, I think, some more rights. However, in December 1946, the Iranian army, with some support from the British and the new rising global superpower, the USA, headed into the region, especially the capital Tabriz, and brutally reoccupied the territory. The night before the invasion, Anush had a vivid dream of violence and made up his mind to tell Feridun of it and warn him. However, when he arrived, Feridun's house was surrounded by soldiers and Anush was forced to flee back to his family home across snowy mountains. Eventually, Anush had to flee to the USSR, where he married, had two daughters, and then divorced. While in the USSR, he also received a doctorate in Marxism-Leninism. Back in Azerbaijan, Feridun faced his fate, was imprisoned, and then executed. Especially following his divorce, Anush was extremely lonely and attempted to re-enter Iran in disguise, which did not work. He was imprisoned for nine years before being freed in the revolution. Anusha's prison experience, like many of those locked up, had been appallingly cruel. Anush shared all this with Majan for a special reason. Quote, It's important that you know, our family memory must not be lost, even if it's not easy for you, even if you don't understand it all. End quote. Majan promised him she would never forget. How old is she at this point? I think she's about, well, the revolution, she'll be about 10 or 11 or 12, because... They've just freed the political prisoners and she was yep. 10 when the revolution happened. 
that 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 is a lot to put on a 10 year old 11 year old what do you think about she's also seeing people like stabbed yeah and like that is also a lot for a 10 year old it's one of those things i don't think there's anything i'm not blaming him i'm just being like this is it's like i feel like from very young i knew my grandparents had fought in world war ii but i didn't like know any details but that's more because they'd all most of them had passed away so i had my first hand talk of it yeah it's interesting. Also, interesting. We, don't, we don't know how much she added in from like extra talks with Anush and her family afterwards and then she's Correct. written all this in a retrospect yeah. and just put the whole load of information in one go to yeah. streamline it for the narrative. Yeah. It's just, I just find it curious. Yeah. Not curious. I don't know what I find it. I'm just like, I feel sorry for her in a way. Not sorry, but it's just like, I'm just thinking of this little 11-year-old being like, you must remember. I think it's also, there is a point in the story before this, They ha- I cut this bit out because it was, I was like, this will be too long if I leave it in. They had family friends who have also been released from prison who come over and talk in detail about how they were tortured and mm-hmm. Margie's parents forget to send her out of the room. So she's just sitting there listening to this guy like, oh, they use an iron on you, they whip you on the soles of your feet. And that's actually where some of the, her inspiration for torture techniques the local kids come from. So they never actually like, torture each other, but they chase yeah. kids with nails and stuff. It's very weird. Yeah like a, a way of dealing it's your way you you play through these roles to understand what they are and you try and give them some kind of normalcy in your life yeah it's like when you know you inter- you dream about things for your brain to process it i feel like this is another way of processing things that you're learning that you don't understand oh yeah kids process through play that's why yeah. play therapy is still a thing yeah yeah okay so at one point anush gave majan a little swan he'd carved out of stale bread a hobby he'd picked up in prison. Majan kept the swan and was thrilled with her newly acquired uncle, telling all her friends about him and her great uncle, Feridun Ibrahim. Around this time, Ayatollah Khomeini had consolidated power and in a referendum, over 98% of the population voted yes in a referendum to replace the monarchy with a, quote, Islamic Republic, more or less solidifying Khomeini's power over Iran. He declared, that seems legit. It does. Uh, this moral, he de- Khomeini then declared that the new government should be 100% based on Islam. Yeah. So Malji was like, hey, that seems legit. And her parents and Anoush were like, okay, you are still 11. And <laughs> argued that this, this is not how referendums cool. work, Malji. <laughs> um, so Anoush argued that this was an awkward transition period. Every revolution has one and the proletariat would soon rule. But soon after the referendum, the writing was on the wall and many middle-class and educated Iranians began to leave for other countries, including the USA and Australia. It was too late for some. Despite the new Islamic Republic, former political prisoners were being murdered and their friend Moshin, Mosin? Yeah. And their friend Mosin was found with his head in a bath full of water. Soon, all former leaders of the revolution were declared enemies of the Islamic Republic of Iran. People seemed to be disappearing from Marjan's life as their friends were arrested, emigrated, or fled. One day, Marjan was waiting for Anoush to pick her up from school when he didn't turn up. Her mum, Taji, was there instead. Her parents told Marjan Anoush had gone back to Moscow to see his wife. Marjan remembered that Anoush didn't talk to his wife and realised her beloved uncle must have been arrested. Her father confirmed her suspicions. Anoush was permitted one visitor and he requested to see Marjan. Marjan put on her best dress and was taken to the prison, where Anoush told her she had honoured him with her visit. They were permitted ten minutes together. He told her that she was the little girl he had always wanted to have and that one day the proletariat would rule. Then he gave her another carved swan, the uncle of the first. Within a few days, Anoush was executed as a Russian spy. It's here in her book that Marjan casts God out of her life, just when religion might have come in handy. There are no atheists in a foxhole after all. It was September 1980 when Iraq invaded Iran along the western border. The bombing of Tehran had begun. When the Iran-Iraq war began, it was a quick stop to any remaining post-revolutionary debate about what Iran's new national identity would look like, and there was quickly increasing conservatism. The official start of the Iran-Iraq war is September 22, 1980, when when Iraq invaded Iran along the western border. However, Iraq said Iran started it on September 4th when Iran shelled some of the border posts. Regardless, two wrongs don't make a right. And if you two don't start behaving, I'm going to turn this region around and there will be no peace in the Middle East for anyone. The casualties of this war were appalling on both sides. 
We don't know exactly how many soldiers and civilians died, but it's estimated that Iraq lost around 200,000 soldiers and Iran lost potentially 230,000 or more. Many, many more civilians on both sides perished. The numbers have become fudged as both sides began to downplay losses, either to hide how many soldiers had died, as did Turkey coming out of World War I, for example, or they inflated the numbers to bring other countries onto their side by portraying them as more victim than the other. Yeah, and they could have done both, you know? They could have done both. Iran was on the back foot going into this war. As following the revolution, the majority of high-ranking officers in the army had either fled to avoid being purged or been executed. They did have a solid air force, however. But what was the Iran-Iraq war over? Just as World War I wasn't about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, it was fought for many reasons. One, like the Americans and Brits before them, the Iraqis wanted some of Iran's sexy, sexy oil, especially the Khuzestan region in southwestern Iran. Two, Iran is majority Shia Islam and and claims over 90% of its citizens are Shia. In Iraq, today it's about 65% Shia and 30% Sunni Muslims, while a very small proportion of the Muslim population ID as, quote, just Muslim, end quote. However, under then-dictator Saddam Hussein, Sunni Muslims were held up and Shias were held as second-class citizens. Saddam Hussein feared that the successful Iranian Shia revolution would incite a Shia rebellion amongst the Shia Shia members of the Iraqi population. Three, Iraq under Hussein wanted to topple the new Shia regime in Iran for reasons said above. Four, oil again, because Iraq wanted to take Iran's role as the primary oil exporter in the Middle East, which they hadn't been able to do before the revolution due to Iran's close ties to the US and Israel. The Iran-Iraq War is one of the most horrendous wars in recent history and was compared to World War I in terms of tactics used, including trench warfare, the use of bayonets, the use of chemical weapons by the Iraqis, and horrifically, the use of human wave attacks, including child soldiers, by Iran. A human wave attack... Actually, chemical weapons have, of course, been banned by the Geneva Convention. A human wave attack is a tactic rarely seen today because it has an appalling human cost. It's basically running at the guns of the enemy in the hope of overwhelming them with melee fighting in your superior numbers. If you have lots of meat but no metal, lots of men but less ranged weaponry, it's sometimes your best bet. You need a lot of fighters so even if half your force gets cut down on the way to the enemy, there are sufficient numbers to win against the other line in hand-to-hand combat. The Iraqis also use child soldiers but nowhere near on the scale of Iran. Both sides also bombed civilian population centres. And this is described throughout Marjan's adolescence in Persepolis. At one point during the war, Marjan was out shopping and returned to find her entire street cut off by the Revolutionary Guard. She didn't know whose building had been bombed and feared it was her own. Her family's apartment block was okay. Her friend's apartment, Nita Bobby Levy, was not so lucky. Though Marjan's mother, Taji, tried to stop Marjan from seeing, Marjan spotted her friend's body in the wreckage. Or part of her. It's not quite clear, but it demonstrates the war touched every single aspect of life in both countries. Marjan's focus of the Iran-Iraq war is obviously from a child or teenager's eye view and how it affected her personally. It's understandable. When Iranian extremists occupied the US embassy, Marjan was mostly upset it meant she wouldn't be able to get a visa to visit a friend in the USA. When the My heaters come on again, it's really loud, I'm really sorry. When the Ministry of Education decreed that all universities in Iran should be shut, Marjan was more concerned she'd never get to be a famous chemist like Marie Curie. Mar- Marie Curie? Marie? Mary. I actually don't really care about Marie oh. Curie. Not to be a bad feminist or whatever, but... It's, Mar- it's Marie, yeah. yeah well. I don't know much about her. Soon, the government mandated that because women's hair emanates rays that excite men, women should cover their hair. When you think about it, that's more a slight on men, making them all seem like uncontrollable perverts. In addition, men were expected to stop wearing short-sleeved shirts because their forearms could emanate those rays that excited women. Men were also told not to wear neckties, decadent symbols of the West that they are. It changed how people behaved. They acted and dressed more piously. Taji instructed Marjan to tell people that she prayed during the day, but also accepted that Marjan wasn't a little girl anymore and had to learn to defend her rights as a woman. The entire family went to an anti-fundamentalism demonstration, which quickly devolved into violence, and the family fled back home. They took a short holiday to Spain and Italy, realising that soon they may not be allowed to leave the country. It was around this time that Iraq officially invades Iran. 
The invasion set Marjan's blood boiling. She wanted to fight. She wanted to bomb Baghdad. Baghdad? Baghdad, the capital of Iran. Baghdad and Tehran are less than 800 kilometers from each other, and there were often bombing raids. The family sheltered in the basement of their apartment building with the rest of their, like, fellow livers in the apartment, apartment people. Still, Marjan believed in the power of Iran, and when the news reported that 140 Iranian planes had bombed Baghdad, she po- pointed to that as proof that the army was still strong. Ebi, her dad, went and fetched the radio, tuning it to the BBC. He'd been saying that the army and Iranian government were too weak to mount an attack, but the BBC proved him wrong. The attack had occurred. However, the BBC also announced heavy Iranian losses, almost half the planes in total. One of Marjan's schoolmates' father was a pilot who died in the raid. As the war continued, there were food and goods shortages, with fighting in the shops and no fuel. Marjan's mother's friend's house was bombed by the Iraqis as they aimed for a refinery at Abadan in northern Iran, and so this woman, her husband and their kids came to stay and crammed into Marjan's apartment. Refugees bound for Tehran were often spoken of in low terms. As the war dragged on, the government began to print lists and photos of so-called martyrs in the newspaper. To quote Majan herself, quote, Iraq's arms were modern, but where Iraq had quality, we had quantity. Compared to Iraq, Iran had a huge reservoir of potential soldiers. The number of war martyrs emphasised that difference, end quote. I feel like today we associate the idea of martyrs with a specific type of militant Islamism. So I just want to add in that many world religions have a similar kind of martyrdom. I mean, most Catholic saints died for their religion. Um, the only reason the, the Romanovs weren't saints, um, weren't martyred, was because they didn't actually die for the, Rome, the Russian Orthodox Church. They died as true believers, though. There's also a kind of Hindu martyrdom and Jewish martyrdom. And like Socrates is sometimes presented as a martyr for like rational thought, which when you think about it, isn't really rational. Anyway. The Anzacs are more or less political martyr footballs in Australia. Um, so these martyrs were, yeah. So like martyr is just—it's a political use, like it's, it's a political, political propaganda half the time. Like it's—it's it's just being like these people died for our cause. Whatever that cause is, doesn't matter. And if you don't also fight for our cause, they've died in vain. Yeah. So these Iranian martyrs were, like so many before them, levied for indoctrination into a cause. At school twice a day, Marjan and her classmates were made to line up and, like, beat their chests and listen to funeral marches. There's a really creepy scene in the film, actually, where they show that happening. Mm-hmm. Taji scoffed at this, telling her daughter to focus on life. And focus on life they did. The girls, because by now the schools are segregated by sex, um, and Marjan especially began to make fun of these rituals and other acts of service they had to do for the Iranian soldiers, like knitting beanies, to the point where they were all suspended from school for a week. The parents, who, remember, had in another life sent their children to secular schools, marched down and complained to the teacher that they shouldn't have suspended the girls for having fun. The teacher retorted that there was a war on and they should be grateful to be at school at all. And also, those girls should wear their veils correctly. Marjan's father snapped back, quote, if hair is as stimulating as you say, then you need to shave your moustache, end quote. <laughs> and then in the text, this image is captioned, quote, my father actually said that, end quote. That's, that's a burn. Yeah, fucking sick. The girls might have been mostly having fun, preparing to be good, modest women supporting the soldiers and the martyrs. But on the other side of the aisle, the boys were being prepared to become soldiers. This hit home very quickly for the Satrapis. Marjan's family's housekeeper, great Marxist Thayer, serves as a representation for this, one of the most enduring horrors of the Iran-Iraq war. This is Iran's use of young boys and men in both their waves attacks and to clear minefields. These young boys were told they will be given the status of martyr and be given virgins, food, gold and diamonds in heaven. These young boys from poor families were then given a plastic key, the key to heaven, and whipped into a frenzy until they ran across minefields. It was cheaper than using minesweepers or doing it properly. By the way, the Quran forbids the recruitment of children under the age of 16 to the armed forces. Though Majan never witnessed the use of the boys on the battlefield, her cousin Shahab did. He was already doing his national service when the war was declared but talked of seeing the boys and the absolute carnage wrought as they ran across the fields and were blown to pieces. None of Marjan's male friends were given the plastic key. She reminisced later that, quote, the key to paradise was for poor people. 
Thousands of young kids promised a better life exploded on the minefields with their keys around their necks, end quote. As the war progressed, Marjan became interested in punk rock music, and this is delightfully shown in the movie. Such music was banned, along with other sinful and Western things, such as <coughs> playing cards, alcohol, unless you were a religious minority requiring ceremonial booze, board games, including but not limited to chess sets, gender mixed dancing, Western music, including but not limited to Michael Jackson and Iron Maiden, the distribution of Christian literature in Farsi. In 2000, the comic book Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis, and as of 2007, Marjan Satrapi's film Persepolis. Their parents didn't let this phase them and often hosted secret parties and game nights and attended ones held by trusted friends where illegal booze flowed freely. Majan and her friends knew the war wasn't going their way and when Iran rejected a peace deal put forth by Iraq, it seemed very clear that the survival of the conservative Islamic Republic was tied to the war. The regime became increasingly conservative, repressive and trigger-happy, systematically arresting and executing those who publicly opposed the regime. Young unmarried women who were arrested and sentenced to death were at first married to revolutionary guards who would rape the women before her execution. It was, after all, illegal to execute a virgin. Marjan's parents tried to protect her, but also knew she needed outlets. When they went on a trip to Turkey in 1983, they smuggled rock posters back into Iran for Marji, along with Nike runners. Unusually for a girl of 13 in Iran, Marji was allowed to go out alone to buy pirate tapes. Once she got stopped by the women's branch of the Guardians of the, of the Revolution. So they asked her why she was wearing a badge of Michael Jackson, a symbol of Western decadence. And this was 1983 ish, so Michael Jackson still, yeah. Uh, uh, he still had duck skin. So how do we talk about that? I can't remember anymore. They didn't know he was a pedophile at the time either. Um, so Michael Jackson still had dark skin, so Marjan lied and said it wasn't Michael Jackson, it was Malcolm X, the leader of black Muslims in America, which he kind of was. That's the whole thing. We're not going into the nation of Islam when we're looking at the Islamic Republic. Marjan managed to trick the guardians who wanted to take her to the police station for a whipping, and she fled home. In amongst all this, the Iraqis got their hands on ballistic missiles and used them on Tehran and other cities further in Iran. Marjan's parents made a decision. Perhaps it was the death of Marjan's friend's friend, Nader Babalevi. Perhaps it was how Marjan kept nearly coming into serious trouble. Haji and Ebi had raised a liberated political and vocal daughter, which was a very dangerous thing during this period in Iran, especially considering how the Revolutionary Guard treated unmarried female prisoners. So they made a decision. One day, they sat Marjan down and told her they were sending her to live with Taji's friend Zozo in Vienna, where she would attend a French language school. Her parents promised that they would join her in a few months. Majan had the correct feeling that they were lying. Majan's grandmother told Majan to always be true to herself, and at the age of 14, Majan left for Austria, where she would spend the next few years of her life, far from the war and everyone she loved. Margie was lucky to be able to leave. Young boys were banned from leaving the country after they turned 13. Marjan Satrapi eventually returned to Iran where she completed a creative arts degree, married, divorced and tried to live happily under the regime. However, it didn't work out and she moved, this time to France where she began to work as an artist. The translator of her first comic book, Persepolis, The Story of a Childhood, was Matthias Ripa, who ended up becoming her second husband. But I don't know if they met because he was a translator or he was a translator because he was her husband. Marjan went on to co-direct the film adaptation of the book and it tied for the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival. I definitely recommend reading the book before you see the movie because the movie does have to streamline and leave a lot of stuff out, but its use of montage especially is really excellent in bringing across the horror and weariness of such violence of both the revolution and the war. Iggy Pop also voices Uncle Anoush in the English language version. But I reckon that... I know! Why is he here? But I recommend watching the French language version because I'm a wanker and also I feel like Marjan had more control over that script. That um, would make sense. But like watch whatever you want. If you don't like subtitles, watch the English version. It's cool. Um, Marjan has since written several more books about her family and life in Iran where she's not allowed to return. And she's also directed a film about Marie Curie, which apparently wasn't actually that great, but I'm not interested in Marie Curie. So it had Rosamund Pike in it, um, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. Majan has continued to be outspoken about her beliefs, telling Emma Watson, yes, that Emma Watson, quote, the enemy of democracy isn't one person. The enemy of democracy is patriarchal culture. 
As with the family where the father of the family decides and has the last word, so a dictator is the father of the nation, end quote. To Majan, the education of women is key to liberation and there can be both patriarchal women and feminist men. So the interview with Emma Watson is linked in the show notes because it is actually very great. I think I would really recommend reading that as well. Um, it's good to hear her like talking almost now, modernly, because that yeah. was almost 20 years ago now. Um, I would definitely read the book. Uh, it is well worth it, and it usually comes in the full ominous Persepolis' story of a childhood and Persepolis' story of a return. Like Mr. Gray Brown, for his work, is our newsreader man. He is also a big graphic novel fan, which is why I asked him to do the voice in the in the newsreader bit. Yeah. Um, so we have social media, at Women of War Pod for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, our website is womenofwarpod.com. Go to that, go to womenofwarpod.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. Um, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a review on Apple Reviews because that would be quite lovely and would make us very happy yeah. and would be a great birthday present for me because all of you forgot my birthday and I'm very offended. <laughs> so uh, that's it. That's it. That's everything. Thank you so much for listening. Um, so we're going to close the show here with another quote from Marjan Satrapi from the interview. Um, Emma, Hannah, there, Hannah, you be Emma Watson and I'll be Marjan. And that sounds so much better than I want to be the Nazi from last episode. Uh, okay, so I have a question from an Iranian woman who is part of the book club who wants to know what your hope is for the women and people of Iran and what you think is achievable. Yes, I'm not going to do an Iranian French accent because that would be questionable as hell. All right. I think that lots of things might be achievable because 70% of Iranian students are women, which gives me hope. I hear more and more that girls, women, are refusing to marry, who have decided that you cannot leave a, lead a life under the control of your father and then under the control of your husband. Decisions that didn't exist 20 years ago. So as this mentality and culture changes, then we can have real hope. And it is changing. On a historical scale, it's nothing. But in our lifetime, it's something. I would really prefer change for good now rather than having all this revolution where spilled blood just brings more spilled blood. So I have a lot of hope. Yes, I think it's going to be fine. <laughs>